an idiot. I can't believe she did that. I can't believe he made that decision. What was she thinking? Are they really that clueless? If that had been me, I'd have never have done that. I mean, I might not be perfect, but I definitely wouldn't have done that. Do we recognize these words? Do we find ourselves saying these things? It's very easy to say those things. And it's gonna be very easy when we come to today's passage to be immediately judgmental of Elijah and his actions. You see, two weeks ago, if you were here with us, we saw in 1 Kings 18, the great Mount Carmel showdown. We saw God display his power and authority in bringing fire from heaven. And we come to this passage and it can feel like an anticlimax. Like the fuse of Israelites' uh, repentance has fizzled out. That Jezebel and her husband have extinguished this flame. That it's all over. But this would be a mistake. You see, in this chapter, we're going to see a God who hasn't given up on his people. A God whose whispers are more powerful than earthquakes and fires. A God who preserves a people for himself. And a God who uses weak people to do mighty things. So our first point is God preserves his prophet. God preserves his prophet. So chapter 19 starts with Ahab telling his wife Jezebel everything that happened at Mount Carmel. She recounts exactly what Elijah did, a fire being called down from heaven and the Lord answering by destroying not only the meat, not only the altar, but even the stones that it was built on and the water that had been poured on top. And he also tells her of what happened next. The fact that Elijah won back people for the Lord, that they helped him gather up her false prophets and they put them to the sword. They killed them. And as you can imagine, she was not best pleased. I imagine she was raging. Her God shown to be false, her prophets put to the sword. Just look down at verse two, where we get her response. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Jezebel is clear. She fundamentally swears an oath that if she doesn't kill Elijah like he killed her prophets, then her gods can deal with her ever so severely. And she isn't just saying this to herself. She isn't just muttering it under her breath. Churchy sends a messenger to Elijah. Imagine the queen sent a messenger to you, telling you that she was going to make sure that you were dead by this time tomorrow because you proved her religion to be false. Well, verse 3 tells us how Elijah responded. Now, notice with me that there is a footnote next to the word afraid. And at the bottom, it, it says, um, he saw. He saw. Now, the word in Hebrew actually means he saw. You see here, it wasn't that Elijah was really scared. He wasn't a big scaredy cat who didn't trust God, that he'd seen Mount Carmel and now he was faltering. No. Rather, he sees that Jezebel isn't repenting. She won't change her ways. Even though her so-called God hasn't answered, her prophets are dead, she still stubbornly won't turn back to God. She still wants to worship her idols. Elijah knows that his life is at risk because this woman is crazy. 
She's been proved completely wrong, her religion to be false, yet she's absolutely resolute in her decision to kill Elijah. And he flees, he runs away. If we notice, he goes to Bathsheba, a place that's in the extreme south of Judah. It's not even in Israel, it's further away than Israel, over 80, 100 miles away. He then goes even further, he leaves his servant there and wanders into the wilderness. He's despairing, he's agonizing over what has just happened. Look down at verse four with me. While he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, he came to a broom bush, sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life, I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. Elijah probably can't believe it. How has Baal worship not come to an end? Why am I on the run and Jezebel is sat at home? He's so desperate, he even asked God to take his own life. I don't think he did this because he wanted early retirement or because he was packing in his ministry. I think he's saying he would rather God take his life then let Jezebel take it and claim a victory for Baal, as if Baal had delivered Elijah over to her. He no longer wants to be part of a failed ministry to a stubborn people who won't repent. Well, thankfully, God doesn't answer Elijah's request. Rather, again, he comes to Elijah's aid. He provides for Elijah. He preserves his prophet. Look down at verse five. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. The angel of the Lord uh, wakes Elijah and revives him. And I think here is a good example of the need for physical provision and rest. You see, Elijah is just a human being. He's just like me and you. He needs things. He needs things that God doesn't need. Elijah needs rest and food and water. God doesn't need them. You see, God here is the sustainer. Elijah is the sustained. God is the preserver. Elijah is the preserved. And in verse seven, as we see, the angel mentions a journey. Now again, here there's some debate. What journey is this? Is it a journey he's just made from, fleeing from Jezebel? Or is it a journey he's about to go on? Look down at verse eight with me. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. I think verse eight and nine make it clear to us that this food was to strengthen Elijah for the coming journey where he travels 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God, or maybe better known to us as Mount Sinai. Now to this point, our ears should be pricked up. Mount Sinai is an extremely important place throughout the Old Testament. It's a place that God first met with his people after the Exodus, where he revealed to them his law, where he made a covenant with them. The laws he revealed there were meant to stop them from going into idolatry. So for Elijah to be here should be an indicator to us that something big is gonna happen. 
Every time Mount Sinai is mentioned, something big happens. And this is only reinforced, the fact that the angel of the Lord came to give Elijah food so he could go on this journey. God wanted Elijah to come here. You see, this isn't Elijah being afraid. This isn't Elijah being scared and running and just fleeing and trying to find somewhere to hide. This is God. This is Elijah running to God. And this is where we're going to see our second point. God is going to reassure his prophet. God reassures his prophet. Look down at the second half of verse 9 with me. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? Again, it would be wrong here to assume that Elijah is still a bit forlorn. He's a bit afraid. He's a bit down. That he isn't trusting God. It'd be easy to assume that God's question is a rebuke to Elijah. And it's very easy, isn't it, when we read the Bible to kind of read in a tone that God's question is a bit of an accusation. What are you doing here, Elijah? You're not meant to be here. You're meant to be with Jezebel, with Ahab, telling them to repent, to turn back to me. I can't believe you've come here. What are you doing? But I don't think that's the case. God's question here is an invitation to Elijah to explain why has he come here? Why have you come to Horeb? Why have you come to Sinai? Why have you come to the place of the covenant? God wants an explanation, and Elijah gives him one. Look down at verse 10. He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. You see, Elijah is someone who cares about God's reputation, not just among Israel, but among the world, the rest of the nations. He wants the people to obey God as they were meant to. Here, he's crying out as a testimony against God's people. He's telling God of the sad reality that his chosen people have chosen another God, a false God. You see, throughout 1 Kings, we thought about this idea of divided hearts, hearts that go away from God, hearts that aren't fully devoted to God. And that's what we're seeing right here. These people have rejected God's covenant. And God's covenant was his agreement to them that if they obey his laws, if they live in a way that pleases him, then he would bless them with a land and a people. And look, it doesn't say that they've forgotten his covenant. They've rejected it. They've actively rejected God's promises. You see, Elijah here, he's at the mountain of the covenant, telling the God of the covenant that they've rejected his covenant. Not only this, look with me. It says that they've torn down the altars. The altars, the very places where the people could come, could offer a sacrifice and find forgiveness, have been torn down. There can't be forgiveness without sacrifice, and there can't be sacrifice without altars. It's gone. There can be no forgiveness here. And look also, they've killed the prophets of God. The prophets being the ones who would bring God's word to bear on his people have been killed. The ones who would bring his word, who would rebuke them, admonish the people, bring them back into God's presence, have been killed. God's word has been silenced in Israel. And I wonder, how much do we care about God's being, God being honored? Do we really care about God's glory? Do we find it easy to come here on a Sunday and see, say, hallowed be your name, 
but then forget about it the rest of the week? Do we long for our city and our nation to turn to God? Well, Elijah is in no doubt wondering what God is going to do about this. What is God going to do in the face of his people's rejection? Look down at verse 11 with me. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord. For the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Elijah was told that the Lord is going to pass by. The creator of the universe, the holy of holies, is about to pass by. This is a big occasion. And what happens next, it's really important to understand. We get three displays of power. Firstly, we get a wind, a wind that can shatter rocks, that tears up mountains like they were mere paper. Secondly, we get an earthquake, showing that the very foundations of the earth were being rocked and shaken. And thirdly, look, there's the fire. And if the fire is anything like the earthquake and the wind, it was most likely ferocious. But notice carefully with me, the Lord isn't in any of these. These are huge and momentous things, but he isn't in any of them. They're visual displays of his power and his majesty, but he's not there. Look at verse 12. Where is God? He's in the gentle whisper. A whisper that stands in huge contrast to the natural power we've just seen. Yet it's in the whisper that Elijah knows God is about to pass by. It's in the whisper that Elijah comes to the mouth of the cave and covers his face. And this is so important for us to remember because it's God who is a speaking God, a God of words. You see, God can do anything he wants. He can do the big Mount Carmel showdown. He can send fire from heaven. But God is a speaking God. You see, it was at his word that the earth was formed. It was at his word that the sun ignited and the stars were made. And it's faith in that word that can bring death dead people to life. It's faith in his word that the ancients were commended for as we saw this morning. Do we believe this? How often do we find ourselves thinking that if only my non-Christian friend could see some awesome display of power, if only they could see a miracle, then they would believe. Or maybe you're here tonight and that's you. Maybe you think, if I could just see something amazing, then I would believe. Well, if 1 Kings 18 taught us anything, then it taught us that that isn't true. You see, last time we saw God send fire from heaven, able to destroy everything in its path. But what was it met with? It was met with a Jezebel refusing to believe and a people too scared to trust God. As a church, do we believe that the power is in the word? That if we speak the gospel, that is enough. That God is going to do his work through his word. Well, let's carry on and see how God is going to reassure his prophet. Look down at verse 13 again with me. 
Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came, and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel Meholah, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and whose mouths have not kissed him. God is now appearing in person to Elijah and invites him again to explain why is he at Horeb? Why is he coming to the mountain of the covenant? Look, Elijah again gives the same reply. He reaffirms that God's people have rejected him, that the idol-loving, prophet-killing people of God have rejected his covenant, have rejected his laws, and have rejected him. Not only this, but Elijah assumes that he must be the only one who's left, the only faithful Israelite, and now they're trying to kill him as well. But God knows what's going on. And more than this, he's preserved a people for himself. And look at God's answer to the problem. His answer is to anoint two new kings and a prophet. Now we might ask, why? Why is this God's solution? Why is God not just punishing these people immediately? Why is he not just wiping them off the face of the earth to get rid of them? After all, they've turned their backs on the Lord. They've killed his prophets. They've silenced his word. Well, it's because God is highlighting here a pattern seen throughout the Bible. That with leaders, obedient leaders, who lead the people in obedience, and with prophets who speak the word, then God's people can live how they're meant to. See, God's people need a leader. They need a righteous king. And they need people to speak the word. But notice with me that judgment will still come. It says Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazael. And Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. So there is punishment for those who've turned away from God. For those who've turned to Baal instead of worshipping the Lord. And this is a stark warning to us today. It's so easy, isn't it, to slip into idolatry. I doubt that many of us here have a Baal statue at home. I don't know, but I'm quite sure. But how quickly do we put the created things above the creator? Would we rather spend time praying and in God's word or doing anything else? When we wake up in the morning, what do we reach for? Is it our mobile phones or is it our Bible notes? When you catch yourself daydreaming at work, what are you daydreaming about? Are you daydreaming about winning the lottery or the next holiday or a better family life? Or are you daydreaming about a greater faithfulness to Jesus Christ? This idolatry is wrong. In every form it takes, it's wrong. It's a rejection of God. And the Bible says one day there's punishment. We need to turn away from these idols. We need to turn to the true and living God. Well, this section ends 
uh, with a great reassurance to both us and Elijah. Look down at verse 18 with me. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. You see, in the midst of government-backed, of royalty-backed idolatry, the situation looks ever so bleak. The picture of people being, uh, of being surrounded by people who've turned away from God, who've rejected his covenant, must have been really, really sad for Elijah. But God reassures him. He encourages him that he has reserved for himself a people. God has preserved people who haven't bowed to Baal, who haven't kissed him in loyalty, whose loyalty to God hasn't faltered. What an encouragement that must have been for someone who thought he was the only one left, who was convinced that the only faithful person in the whole of Israel was himself, finds out that isn't true, that God has kept a people for himself, a people that Jezebel couldn't sway, that her false religion couldn't take away, a people who've remained faithful to Yahweh. And as we talk about people who've turned away from God, about living in a nation that's turned away from God, it feels all too familiar. The nation of John Knox, the nation of a rich heritage of churches and theologians is now a nation that's turned away from God. How easy is it for us to despair when we look around, when we look outside and see people rejecting God, living their own way, living with themselves as king. It's easy to think that the church is finished. Christianity's over, Jesus is history. Well, let me encourage you with this. God has reserved for himself a people. God promises to build his kingdom. Listen to these words of Jesus in Matthew 16. Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. God promises that the church will be built and not even the gates of hell can prevail against it, can overcome it. Church family, we can be bold for Christ because we know he's won the victory. We know that he's going to build his church right here in Edinburgh. And we know that the gates of hell will not overcome. And that leads us to our final section. God gives hope to his prophet. God gives hope to his prophet. Elijah at the start, having felt down and out, felt like this was the end is now reassured and preserved. He's not the only one left. God has kept a people for himself, and now he's gonna send him to go anoint another prophet and two kings. And this just points to the fact that God hasn't given up. He hasn't just gonna wipe, uh, wipe these people off the face of the earth. He's gonna send more people. He's gonna send people to bring them back to himself. He wants his people to turn back to him. He hasn't given up on them. So in this final short section, we get Elijah anointing Elisha. Look down at verse 19 with me. So Elijah went from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat. He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come with you. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? So Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. 
He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and became his servant. You see, Elijah goes to find Elisha and he's just going about his normal everyday life. Nothing extraordinary, just plowing a field. And that's what's so great about this little section. It's just so ordinary. We can be lured in by the spectacular, by the amazing, by the glorious. But right here we have a pattern of Christian discipleship. A decision that means leaving the old way of life and pursuing the new way of life. Elijah places his cloak on Elisha, a sign that he was to follow him. And now Elisha knows what this means. And he has to go back to say goodbye to his parents. He knows that following Elijah, following God's path for him is going to be costly. He's probably never going to see his parents again. He's going to never return home. Not only this, but he also knows that this means there's going to be no more plowing. He's got a new profession. He's now going to be a prophet. Look down, he kills the oxen. He burns the plow. All of these are signs that he's leaving his old life behind. He's starting this new life, a life of service, a life in God's service. And now we mustn't interpret Elisha's desire to go back as hesitancy. It's not that he's a bit unsure, let me go back, let me think about it, let me just pray about it for a few months. He isn't having doubts. Rather, he's resolutely saying goodbye to his old life and hello to this new life of following Elisha. And the question is, are we willing to do the same? Are we prepared for the costly service of following Jesus? Are we ready to take up our cross and follow a crucified savior? Well, this calling of Elisha is a sign of hope for Elijah. The anointing of a new prophet shows that God hasn't given up, that he still wants his word to go out into Israel. He wants his people to hear his word and he wants his people to turn back to him. You see, by the end of the chapter, we've come full U-turn. It started with Elijah fleeing, of Elijah being in desperation, and it ends with a sovereign God reassuringly saving his people and raising up a new generation of people to speak his word. Well, let's conclude. The story of one kings can sometimes feel frighteningly close to our own experience. A people turning away from God, a people turning to idols. But do not despair. I hope we've seen tonight that God doesn't just preserve, reassure, and give hope to Elijah, his prophet, but he does the same to us. God promises in his word to preserve us, to give us everything we need to run the race marked out for us, to live faithfully in a world of unfaithfulness. Not only this, but God promises to build his church. He promises that nothing will overcome it, that as the word goes out, people will come in. And finally, God gives us hope. We have his words, the very words that created life from dust is in our hands. And as long as we have this word, then we know that God is at work. God is saving people. Because this word we have declares to us the gospel this word we have declares of Jesus, the perfect one, the obedient one, the faithful one. He went to a cross to die in the place of those who worship Baals, for those who worship this life, for those who put themselves as king. You see, there is hope for this nation. There is hope for us here tonight.
Because maybe you're here and you don't know Jesus. You still worship the created instead of the creator. And if that is you, then let me tell you that the only certain hope for the future is to be found in Jesus, the one who defeated sin, the one who went to the cross on your behalf. The message is clear. Do not worship what has been made, but worship the maker. Let's pray together.